I'm Fred Ramondi. I was one of the visual effects compositors on the very first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The visual effects of Star Trek have always been cutting edge and often ahead of their time. The reason for that being that artists working on these shows had to find solutions to problems that really never existed before then. Go back in time and take a look at the original series and look at how many things they had to innovate to make some of the special effects for that show. And on this episode of Trek Untold, we fast forward to the 80s, where we're chatting with one of the people who had a large hand in shaping the visual effects of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, Fred Raimondi. Fred worked on the first season of the show with Rob Legato, Dan Curry, and the entire VFX team to figure out the look and special effects and visual effects of the cultural phenomenon that kickstarted the Trek boom of the 90s and beyond. Speaking of cutting edge, Fred has always been the forefront of post-production and went from being an editor to a visual effects artist and these days to becoming a director. You might be familiar with Fred's work on shows and films like the Twilight Zone TV series, Max Headroom, Freddy's Nightmares, True Lies, Common Law, Stranger Things, and much, much more in the commercial world for some very big-name clients that we're going to discuss today, too. Fred has some great stories about working in this field, and that includes a lot of amazing professional advice and insight for anyone interested in this area of his expertise. And really, you can't find a better teacher than Fred and his decades of life experience here, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with an artist and storyteller whose work has held quite a lot of influence throughout Hollywood and beyond. But before we begin this week's episode, if you'd like to support this show, please don't forget to follow Trek Untold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest updates and all sorts of other fun Star Trek-related content. You can also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can check out the shows before they come out, know about my guests in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, among other benefits coming soon. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions who create 3D-printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platform that allows for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. Doing any of those things help keep this show growing and allow me to continue bringing you awesome guests and great conversations every single week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now join me on the other side of the screen. We're with a man responsible for some of the VFX you have seen on the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation and a whole bunch of other things that we're going to talk about today. And that man is Mr. Fred Raimondi. Fred, how are you today? I'm terrific. I'm really honored to be here. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> every anytime I get to talk about my work, it's, uh, it's great. And plus, you know, I mean, just to be part of, uh, be a teeny part of the Star Trek family is pretty... You know, it's a pretty amazing thing to have touched that. When I was a little kid, I never, when I was a little kid growing up in New Jersey, I, 
I had to, I actually, I had to go to bed before Star Trek because <laughs> it was on at 10 o'clock. So that was, you know, I, I never really saw it in the first run. So right, we're going to, we're going to ask you about that actually in a moment here. Cause that's my first question for these interviews. And that's uh, Fred, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? I guess seeing the promos on TV, you know, like what, you know, I was just like, like, what is this? And then my friend, Billy Patterson, who, uh, his parents were a little cooler. Like he let them stay up, but he got to watch it. And like, uh, you know, when he was telling me about it, he was like, yeah, he goes, it's not, he goes, there's like 400 people on the ship and you know, they live there. It's not like, you know, it's not like just a few people going into space. It's a whole, it's a whole thing, you know, it's a whole, it's kind of like a micro civilization. It's like, a, like, a, you know, of course, you know, probably at this point, it's in 10 year old or 11 year old speak, you know, but I, you know, I was like, wow, that sounds like something really different. It doesn't, you know, I never, you know, that doesn't say, you know, science fiction or space to me. And then, you know, once I actually got to see them, um, you know, I saw them mostly in reruns, the, you know, the first ones, um, you know, the, you know, the original series, um, you know, it was just something it was, you know, it was terrific. Was Star Trek your first taste of sci-fi? No, actually my first taste of sci-fi and probably the reason I do what I do. And I don't even know if this counts as sci-fi. There are two. One is, um, I don't know if you're probably too young to remember this, but like on Sunday afternoons, they would have the movie for a Sunday afternoon. And my dad, one day he called me in and he was like, he was like, come here, you got to see this. I want, I want you to see this. And, it, and I, you know, I was like, must have been like five or six. And it was, uh, it was King Kong, the original, <laughs> 1939. And I was like, oh man, I never saw anything like this. This was, it was like unbelievable. But even at that time, I'm watching it, I'm watching him climb at the building and I'm like, what is wrong with the hair on his back? Why does it keep moving? Like it gets like, not something's not <laughs> like, even then, like my little brain was like, there's something not right. And then the other, um, um, uh, taste of it, which is really very, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, which is, which is really something that's very, very close to my heart. And I suspect a lot of other guys, my age is the Jerry Anderson stuff. So, the first one that I saw was Supercar, and I like never saw. I mean, I never seen anything like that. And I'm like a, you know, to this day, I'm a huge fan. Actually, I actually made a CG version of it and had it land over my pool, and <laughs> you know that. And and then you know after that, I saw Thunderbirds, and I was like, wow, man, this is just the coolest thing. These like ships and rockets, and it's like you know. And then it's like really funny. It's like. Years and years later, I mean, it's got to be like 30, 40 years later, my wife bought me the whole set of Supercar and Thunderbirds on DVD. And I watched them and I went, wow. <laughs> I, was like, I mean, the ships were still cool, but I was like, it was, you know, I was just like, it was kind of disappointing. I was like, I put them away and I, I was like, okay, well, that, you know, that's it. But I still, like, if you look in my toy, cabinet it's all like it's i i must have you know every thunderbirds times five and 
you know, supercars that I actually built before they act before there were die cast and all that stuff. Like I actually built a model of one. Um, so yeah, those are like my, those are like my earliest memories of that, like that kind of stuff. You know, well, I can I can reassure you and let you know that you're not the first person to have mentioned the Thunderbirds and supercar on this show. So it's definitely yeah. a pretty big cultural important thing to the world of sci-fi. Uh, so you know, as, as you already mentioned, you grew up in New Jersey, and I'm actually your neighbor over in Queens, New York. So oh, no kidding, <laughs> uh, not a stone's throw away, but several stones yeah. throws away. But uh, you know, just kind of go more into that direction. Uh, can you let us know like where you were born, who your parents were, and what little Fred wanted to be when he grew up? Well, um, I was bo- I was born and raised in uh, New Jersey, the Oranges, which is a suburb of Newark, and a deep suburb of New York, if you will. We're like 20 minutes out of New York City. So, um, you know, my, my, my um, you know, I was like an Italian kid, like being, you know, raised in, you know, big Italian family in New Jersey. And my dad was a firefighter and my mom stayed home. She raised me and my sister and my brother. I was the oldest. Um, and um, there were, you know, along with, um, I had always been attracted to technology. Like the first time I saw a set of walkie talkies and I must've been fine. My cousins were older, so they had stuff. I, I, first time I saw a set of walkie talkies, I was like, oh my God, that's like magic. And then one of my other cousins had a tape recorder and I was like, oh, that's amazing. I have to like, I have to try that. It's so it was like I was really attracted to that kind of stuff. And then then cameras like I my dad had a, you know, an not even super eight, an eight millimeter camera, you know, the same same camera that which my baby movies like of me as, you know, you know, six months old. Yeah. Uh, I made my first films on that same camera. Um, and once I got a taste of, you know, photography and I was always interested in that kind of stuff, cameras. And, um, and then the other really big moment was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, which led me in a completely other direction. And I've been a guitar player my whole life. Um, you know, I made record, I, you know, solo album, the apostle of reality, uh, which you can hear on Spotify. Um, and you know, you can get it on Amazon and a bunch of different places. And, um, so all that, and also just like straight ahead, like still photography. I just like, you know, if, I, if, if there was, if I have a camera in my hand, you know, it's just like, it, to me, it's like magic. It's, you know, I, so that's kind of where I, those things were. Uh, the things that were really important to me, much to the chagrin of my parents, because there were no artists in our family. (laughs) So they had no idea what to do with me. Like, you know, and like school was school. I was, you know, not really interested in, you know, I was, I was good. I was, you know, I, 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 you know, I did everything. I got pretty good grades. I wasn't like a stellar student, but um, I was far more interested in that, that other stuff and outer space. Like I was that kid, like I went to space camp when I was 33. So I was that kid too. Like I was the kid that my mom had to wake me up for, for every launch. Like I never missed, a, if a launch was on TV, 
I was there watching it. So that was the other thing. My head was in space and, you know, I was interested in astronomy and, you know, like all that stuff was like really influential to me growing up. So, um, you know, then when I got older, um, you know, went to, you know, I went to high school, I did okay in high school. And then when I went to college, I did, um, you know, I kind of concentrated my studies on, um, on, uh, TV and film. Uh, and, um, if I can interject, actually, uh, yeah, go ahead. uh, where, where'd you go to school? Were you actually going to school for filmmaking? I went to school at a, that's the other thing. I was the, one of the first in my like one of my so a couple of my cousins had gone to college, but I was really the fir- one of the first. So there was, uh-huh. I, I mean, in our you know family group, I may I was probably the third one or the fourth one to go to college. You know, uh-huh. I mean, my mom, bless her heart, and uh, I mean, she's still alive. And but I mean, she was really smart. She was like, she should have gone to college, but they didn't do that in you know 1952 you know it's like it was you know like rich people went to college you know we were really raised i mean just to give you an idea my father's my paternal grandmother and grandfather never owned a car never owned a house so that's just to kind of give you an idea like where you know like where my family came from and my you know um I went to, uh, uh, so I went, I went to, um, it wasn't even like, like my brother ended up going away to school, like went to Rutgers. My sister really didn't want to go. She wanted to be a, like a legal secretary. So she went to like a specialized, like secretarial school. Um, and I went to Kane University, which at the time was only a college. It was Kane College. Uh, it was in Union, New Jersey. Now it's a university. Um, and um i i uh and i concentrated on uh film and tv and uh, i took every film class i could took every tv class i could i was on the radio station and uh so it was really i was really and took you know drawing and um photography like every basically everything creative possible you're doing except for dancing yeah and also writing i was a really i was i mean i'm a good writer um uh, and and it always fascinated me you know like i wrote poem poetry and lyrics and, um you know and i i was just a really good writer which served me well like when i became a director because you know i have to write treatments and you know and then you know even with visual effects you have to write methodologies and you know, so it's it all that, you know, it all served me really, really, really well. Um, and I graduated in uh, 1979 and started my professional life in New York City. Um, they had my college had a program where you could take a whole semester as an internship. So that's what I did. I went to New York City. I and and I and I promised myself that I was not going to take an internship where I was running for coffee. I promised myself I was going to take an internship where I could do. 
And so I, I just to preface this too, this is not like, you know, I, I did internships in college, but it was yeah. like one day a week, maybe Are you talking yeah. like nine to five every day. That's like what the semester is for you. Uh, it pretty much. Yeah. I, like at that point, it, de- it, it really de- depended on the, like where you were interning. You know what I mean? Okay. The place where I ended up interning was a place called the Explorers Post. And it was started by a guy named Ted Estabrook. Now, this guy was fa- a fascinating person. He was he was in TV since it was radio. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he was like one of, he was one of the first TV directors. He directed the first like tons of stuff like on NBC and CBS. He was like a big deal and made a lot of money as a TV director and in the in the early days of TV and then bought TV stations and radio stations. Became very, very wealthy guy and then decided he was really bored. So he goes and becomes Jacques Cousteau's cameraman (laughs) and is like shooting for Jacques Cousteau. And on a a trip, he gets the Benz, which is, you know, um, it's a a skin uh, when you're scuba diving. If you rise too quickly, you get nitrogen in your blood and it and it really hurt him. Like it, it affected his legs. He couldn't, he could walk, but he had to walk with a cane. So all his buddies, Bill Paley and David Sarnoff. Now, you, I don't know if you know who those guys are. Bill Paley started CBS. David Sarnoff started NBC. He knew those guys, like they were his buddies and they, they knew that, that he was a super smart guy. And they said to him, look, you, um, we need a place to train. At the time, there were no, weren't a lot of film and places where you could go learn television. And they said, we need a place where we can train people. So they funded him and they started this thing. And that's basically where I interned. And I, my first day of my internship, I was on the streets of New York with a camera on my shoulder doing man on the street interviews and then learned to edit. And that's when I, that's what I really fell in love with and became an, you know, became an editor. So once you're done with this internship, where do you go next? Like what's your first professional job out of school? My first, uh, this is a kind of an interesting story. So I, I had, I would do like little freelance jobs like that Ted would send me on. Like he still, he did like stuff, but um, I was also PAing on films. You know, I, I PAed on a, on, on a bunch of films and, um, I was PAing on this film called The Information Society. It was a PBS documentary. And we were shooting in a loft in New York. And my job during uh, other, other, you know, other than doing other like horrible PA stuff, like getting food and what have you, during every take, my job was to take the phone off the hook because they were shooting sound. And if the phone rang, it would ruin the take and what have you. So... You know, I mean, it was a loft in New York, but it was really, it was very tiny, you know. So uh, during a take, everybody would like, like rats scatter to the, you know, the few rooms around to hide, to not be, or you'd either be behind the camera or in one of the rooms. So I was in the one of the, I think of the bedroom and I had the, you know, take the phone off the hook and Sitting in there with me was the producer of the film, this woman named Marlon Hent. And she was um, uh, 
you know, she was like young. I mean, I, I don't think she could have been more than 25. Right. I, I'm, I'm 18 at this point, you know, 18, 19 years old. I'm like right out of college. Um, and, you know, in between takes, we get to talking and she says, so she was like, what do you really want to do? And I said, I, I have to tell you, I think the future, you know, with video really, you know, coming into its own, I think post-production is really the future and i think you know anybody that starts a post-production house now is going to do very well in the future and so she says um what kind of experience do you have i said well i you know i did everything when i was at with in my internship i learned i could build a uh, i could build an edit system from scratch and da, 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 da. she said um write me a proposal for a business <laughs> so i was like oh okay and thinking like nothing of it so i write this proposal and i send it to her and i'm working my one of you know of course i had a little job that i did you know i i, I was still i still needed to work so i was working like in a pharmacy stack you know stocking shelves in between you know any tv job or like you know shooting job or tv or film job i could get um and uh i get a phone call and it's her and this is the, this is the day after Christmas. This is December 26th. I'm, I never forget it. And she said, um, she said hi, this is Marlon. Um, she said, um, how you doing? I said, great. She goes, that proposal you wrote was terrific. She said, um, you can start on January 3rd and the equipment gets delivered on the 4th. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, your proposal we're going to do it i'm going to build a business and you're going to do it you're going to be the editor and i was like really <laughs> so i tell this story all the time because you know sometimes you make your own opportunity and that was just one of them i followed through and i ended up working for her for like two years and then i got a job at another tiny post facility in new york uh, which catered to video artists, which was a whole other thing, which was fascinating because I was, it's like, I'm not like thinking about video in a completely, you know, different way. Um, and then one day I was, uh, and I had built a, a state of the art edit room there as well. And uh, one day while I was there, this gal shows up to visit somebody who didn't work there anymore. And I said, oh, you know, John, he left. And she was like, oh, I, you know, I knew he was here. I, and he had just left like the week before or something. So anyway, make a long story short, she's from California, works at KCOP, Channel 13. And she said, yeah, you know, we just got one of these CMX systems. That was the editing system that, that I, I learned how to use. It was the state of the art at the time, a computer editing system. Uh, and she said, um, she said, you know, we just bought one of these systems and they're looking for an editor. I said, you think they'll hire somebody from within? She was like, no, no, no. She goes, I, I think they're just looking for, they want to hire like somebody really good. So I said, well, you know, and at that point in your career, I was like 23, uh, you know, 24. You're sending out resumes, all that. you're always trying to rise up. You know? So I took the information, I sent a resume, sent a reel of my work. I'm sitting home watching TV, getting ready to go out one night. And, you know, I'm still living home at this point. Phone rings and it's this guy from Los Angeles. And he was like, 
we loved your reel and we'd like to hire you and uh, we're going to pay you $28,000 a year. Now, as an editor in New York, I was probably making about $14,000 a year. So that was, a, that was crazy. And my dad was like, you're going to go do this. And I was like, dad, I'm in a band. We're fairly successful. I have a job in New York. I have a steady girlfriend that I've been with for four years. And he was like, go do this. He goes, you'll never have, you'll never be freer to do something like this. He goes, once you get settled and you get married, you're not going to be able to do anything like this. So, and yada, yada. Month and a half later, I put everything in my Volkswagen. I drive to California, work at Channel 13, uh, worked there for about six months, then got a job at NBC, worked there for about six months, and then got offered a job at a place called The Post Group. Now, this place was really interesting. So so if you don't mind, actually, I'd, I'd like to get a little more education on what the scene was like back then. Uh, and this is just kind of my ignorance showing here, maybe my, a little bit of my age also. Um, but, you know, you're talking about right now, this is like the precipice of videotape kind of taking over and replacing it. Yeah, yeah right? video, so, like one inch videotape editing yeah. was the state of the art. Okay, yeah. So basically, you know, we're now heading towards video starting to be the next big thing. Uh, so how did like visual effects start to actually play into things here? And was okay, there like, so this, this was there basically where... a crossover between being a video editor and being a VFX editor at that point? This is where I'm, yeah, this is where I'm, this is, you'll see, it'll, it'll make sense in a second. So I get hired at this place called The Post Group. Now, this was 1983. MTV started in 1981, right? This would have been November of 1982, actually, when I started there. They are the center of the universe when it comes to music videos in Hollywood. Everybody who's anybody is editing their music videos at this place for a couple of reasons. One, the guy who ran it, this guy named Rich Thorne, loved visual effects. I loved like like he wanted nothing more than to make Star Wars, and um, so they were the fir- at that point um, it, like they had they had the only piece of gear in town that could actually take it take an image and move it around the screen in three dimensions, you know, so that it would actually be in perspective. And if you want to go look at some of the first work they did, there's this Billy Joel video called Pressure, where he's sitting in a chair, and he's looking at the screen, and it's in perspective in front of him. That was the kind of stuff they were they were doing, because they, they were the only post house in Hollywood with this piece of gear. It was called an ADO, made by Ampex. So I kind of got my chops together there, and they did all they were if you wanted to do any kind of video effects that was the place where you went to do them and so fast forward a little bit um you know i i cut my teeth there as a as a really a, as an editor at that level that 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 it was a whole different level from what i was doing in new york right so i cut my teeth as an editor at that level so one of the first series in on television to not do their visual effects optically was The Twilight Zone. And 
they happen to get that account. And my boss, Rich Thorne, um, who, you know, I mean, him and about four other guys I owe my entire career to, he saw stuff in me that I didn't see in myself. And he put me on that project as one of the editors. There were a bunch of them that did it. So, so I worked on that. And one of the guys, I worked with um, two visual effects, three visual effects supervisors on that show. I worked with um, a guy named Bruno George. I worked with a guy named David Sasala, who was a sculptor and a visual effects supervisor from ILM. He, uh, and then I worked with another guy uh, named Rob Legato, who um, was a, another Italian guy from New Jersey. So we hit it off really fat, like really well. Um, and he was one of these guys, like, he was like, he was like, dude, you don't even know how talented you are. Like I work with other people and your taste is just like when you're making a key or you're doing something that goes, it just, it's just, your taste is really good. It's just, I was like, okay, great. This is just what I like to do. It's, it's what, you know, what turns me on. And so I learned a lot from him doing Twilight Zone. And then that got canceled. And then um, there was another series that, that was a visual effects series called Max Headroom. And I ended up being the main guy on Max Headroom as well. So I did, in addition to doing the actual visual effects on the show, I also was in charge of putting the Max character together. Nobody got to touch him but me. That was me me that like that was the kind of the ground rule peter wag who was the producer was like nobody does this except you fred and a lot of it was because i had a, a great sense of humor and i i loved comedy so it was it, it just it all came really easy to me so i did that and then as that show was winding up I'm walking through the hall one day and I run into Rob Legato and he's got this binder there that says Star Trek, the next generation on it. And I was like, you know, we said hi. And he was like, Oh, he was like, um, he goes, I got the gig as visual effects supervisor on Star Trek, the next generation. He goes, and you're going to do, you're going to be my guy. You're going to. And I was like, really? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, he goes, I requested you. He was like, you know, out of all the other guys that work here. And I was like, cool. So that's how I ended up getting the gig as, uh, you know, the visual effects compositor on Star Trek The Next Generation. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net. 
or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live, and that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine, and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Truck Untold. All right, so Fred, that's kind of your story of how you got into Star Trek, but I want to actually back things up a little bit here. Uh, and so we've talked and we've used the phrase optical effects a few times now. And, you know, optical effects, visual effects are basically like, you know, on the same family tree, but kind of sort of two different things. Yeah. Um, so can you kind of explain to my audience who might not know what those terms are, basically what the difference is between them? Sure. So optical effects, which I never got a chance to do. Uh, sadly for me, because I, I think it would have been really valuable for me just to understand it. And, and I have a rudimentary understanding of it. The way optical effects worked was, so so it, it was a, if you will, it was a photochemical process, right? It was done with cameras and, you know, film, right? Everything, it was all film at the time. So, um, so basically the, what was, what you would do is you would shoot whatever elements needed to go together. So for instance, if you had a, a background of stars and you had to put a planet on it, and then you wanted a spaceship on the planet or going around the planet, well, you would shoot a star field 
then you would shoot the planet, but you would need to have some kind of mat for it. And then, which allows you to put it, it, it's a, it were a mat is something like a cookie cutter. It allows you to mask something out and put one thing over another, but it was done in, it was done in a photographic process. So think about this. So what you would do is you would run the film, you would expose for the star field, but while you were exposing for the star field, you would leave a black hole. You wouldn't expose where this, the planet had to be. Right. Then you'd run the film back and expose it again, only this time with the planet. So, so you're essentially protecting for the film that isn't exposed. And then you would do have to do the same thing. Then, then what you would do would you would almost dub it down. You would take that piece of film and then put the ship over that piece of film. And now, and this is all done with something called an optical printer which essentially is it's projecting it's projecting the the image and then at the same time rephotographing it so you've got two two cameras you've got a projector and the camera that's recording it so you're essentially you know and then you're adding in in between you have you have a piece of glass or whatever that you're projecting the other image on, and that's puts that that's how the images would go together. That's rudimentary. That's that's a very rudimentary explanation because I never really process. did it, but it's like very complicated. And then you have to do stuff like, you know, like color correcting. It was like that's where you, that's. I don't, have you ever heard the um, have you ever heard the phrase a wedge? I have. Okay. So that's where the fray, that's where a wedge, that's where it wedge, uh, doing a wedge comes from. And basically what they would do is they would print it with different lights and there would actually be a wedge saying what, there was actually a little wedge cut out of, of the film. So then you would look at it with a loop and go, oh, okay. So we'll use two printing lights on this. And so it, it, it was a very long, arduous, process i like i can't even imagine like that's how they did star wars it's just you know it's like it it, it, you know it's amazing it's almost like literally physically compositing stuff as opposed to doing it digitally no it is physically compositing stuff you are you are physically compositing images together you know to the point where like the perfect is the perfect example right like i forget which star wars it is but it's like it's either the first maybe it's the first one with the emperor where in the theater, like you never saw it, but like if you looked at the bottom of the emperor's neck, it's all like going like it's all chewy, and you see all this shit going on. Well, that was because they did they they thought they didn't want to see what was here, so they rotoscoped around here. So this is somebody actually painting on you know a piece of mylar, rephotographing it, and then using this process to. To put it back together. So, but uh, they're using actual paint and mylar frame by frame. Crazy. And it's like, not, not to like go on a super far tangent in this. Cause I know at some point we got to get into Star Trek, yeah. but yeah. I, you know, I just like recently rewatched uh, a trip to the moon because TCM was showing it and they showed the actual like hand painted color version of it. And it's just like such an archaic relic, but it's really amazing about how special effects were done, you know, even just yeah. 30 years ago. Well, that's my thing. Like, I like 
you know, as much as I like, I'd be a visual effects guy. I mean, I, like I, I love, I love the art form, but I, you know, I, and I love stories. So like, I'm a big TCM fan. I like those older movies for, I just like, and it's really funny. Like when I watch them, I watch them with, you know, if depending on what the story is, I'll, I watch them with the eye of a, a visual effects person. Some after, after, like if I watch it more than once and I'll be like, they did such a good job with the, with what they had. Like they, ne- like it never took me out of the like move. That's had to me that, that was the art form back then was to make it so believable that it never took you out of the movie where you went, Oh my God, that's friggin' awesome. Uh, awful. You know, you'd see some stuff and go, Oh my God, it takes you out of the movie. The, you know, the, the really good guys, that was that's how they got, the, that was the art. I just had that experience too. Cause I just watched, I think I actually was also on TCM. Um, it was for, for my first time viewing forbidden planet and oh, right. there it's like, wow. It's like, you know, they're so limited by when this was made, but uh, that, that monster, when they had that monster and like everything that worked with it, that's really impressive. That's like yeah. pretty amazing work right there. Same thing with um, the other one, uh, Klaatu Barada Nikto, uh, that one. Um, yeah, Day, Day the Earth Stood Still. Day the Earth Stood Still. Like you look at it and it's just like, there's nothing in that movie that's, that takes you out of it. It's just, it's all, you know, there was like, you know, it's, it's done more with story than it is with images. And to me, that's, 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 you know, that's, that's the main thing. Cause you know, you could make people cry with stick figures, but you know, visual effects, you know, (laughs) you know, can't solve, can't save a bad story. Very true. I don't know if you watch much of the new Star Treks, but, uh, you know, with, with new Star Trek, everything is very top secret. Like, you know, the actors, when they're auditioning, uh, we talked to them on the show plenty of times. They usually don't even know they're actually auditioning for Star Trek, especially if it's first season. Right, right. So for you working on the first season of TNG, this is the first time Trek has come back since really, you know, the movies are doing their own thing. But this is the first time Trek has coming back to TV. How secretive is what you're doing? Not, it wasn't like that. It was a different, <laughs> it was a different time. Okay, so like, you know... Here's the other thing. There was no internet. You know, this is like night. What is it? Eight. I want to say it was like eighty six or eighty seven. Like when we when we when we did it. I it premiered. I think it premiered in the. I want to say it premiered in the fall of eighty seven. Something like that. Yeah, that's right. Maybe. Um, there was no internet. There was no. You know, like the best you could do, hope to do, was read in the Hollywood Reporter that there was going to be a new a new Star Trek series. You know, I mean, even in like for the mainstream, like you might see a blurb in like the mainstream press or like, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. It was nothing like it is today. So it was really. You know, I mean, the other thing is, like, at that time, like, the the film business was so, you know, I mean, that was part of what attracted me to it was, like, when I was a little kid, I went to watch, like, I I cut school just to go watch them film a Burger King commercial, you know, and I, because I never, I mean, I was was probably 13, 14, right, and I was like, I'd never seen a real film set before, and I was like, I was blown away. I, I sat outside that I, I sat outside and watched them film the whole day. So, but, um, you know, it was a small community. It wasn't, 
you know, and I, and I thought for me, I thought, Oh, I want to be part of this. This is cool. I want to be part of that secret club, you know, but it wasn't very secretive. It would, because there wasn't, it wasn't, you know, crazy where anybody posted, anybody could post a picture of it and, and tip the, you know, tip the hat, you know, it just wasn't like that. So back in that very first time when, you know, TNG is getting off the ground here, uh, you know, we mentioned Rob Legato. He's the man that brought you into the fold here. Yeah. Did you guys have any meetings those days to kind of discuss, here's the style of how we're going to do things. Here's the visual uh, plan, if you will. Was there any kind of things like that to kind of explain the visual vocabulary you're going to use in the show? Um, they did have a, uh, there was a, there was a production Bible, which, um, uh, I believe I have a copy of it somewhere, uh, which essentially like, and then there was other stuff like uh, other, uh, like addendum that would come out later. Like I remember Michael reading Michael Okuda's, um, this is what this, (laughs) this is how a phaser works, right? It's like, this is, this is, you know, like on stun, it's like, my the microwave on low you know he, he like equated it to like a microwave like that's what a, a very good description what like a microwave would do to you so there was like that kind of stuff but in terms of the visual uh the vocabulary like stuff i'll give you a perfect example like stuff like the transporter right the the, the transporter in tng really that was me and rob looking at videos of the last film version of star trek which i have no i don't even remember which one, what it was anyway look we would like look at that and then he had an animation he had a uh an animation element made of the these lines like just coming down it was an animated element of these lines coming down and then there was another animation element that they had that were like these like these if you if i didn't know better it would look like bubbles like but like looking at soda bubbles macro tiny soda bubbles i mean now we would just do it with a particle system right but then this is how you did it so that particular element became affectionately known at the post group as streaks and twinkles (laughs) So basically it was Rob and I in an edit room uh, one more. I forget for what, what reason we had to go in at like 6 a.m. and do it. I think part they didn't want anybody else to be seeing it. So there was that, you know, the secrecy part of it. Um, but I think there was also something going on at the studio and he had to be there. So we had to do it early in the morning. So we worked from like, I want to say like 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. And just coming up with how it would be done now doing this i it was done on a you know this was done using one inch tape machines and a production switcher so for those of you that don't know what a production switcher is it's the it's the big console with lots of buttons and they look like they have you know Fate, they're faders but they look like stick shift like the most like star that. trek looking thing in all of post-production basically yeah. And actually, one there there is one in in the first Star Wars. I think I'm not I surprised. Think, <laughs> yeah, I mean there is one in the first Star Wars. Um, so basically, I had to come up. The other thing was, like for that, like we were coming up with it. We're looking at the old one and and also trying to add like uh, 
you know, put our own like little spin on it. And so we spent, you know, I want to say like four hours essentially designing it on the fly, coming up with, you know, coming up with how it, how it would be made. And then, but it was, you know, fairly complicated. And the other thing was, this is just me knowing, thinking ahead as the guy that's going to have to be doing these. I'm, I'm thinking I have to make sure that this is something that can be done modularly and quickly not and quickly because like we're gonna have to do a lot of this the other thing is if there's more than one person in the frame that means we have to do it four times not just one you know one time so it was like it was a fairly you know the, the i had to keep all that stuff so i was really at the same time i was designing it i was designing the procedure for how to do it as well, which later on I learned when I went to learn how to, I took formal art classes to drawing lessons. I, you know, I just thought people that drew just like did it. And like, that was it. I didn't realize like that they would make 50 before they got the final one. <laughs> Part of the process is learning how to make it. And we should add to you, like, this is now, you know, you guys are working on Encounter at Farpoint, the two parts yes. series beginner, right? So basically, yeah. you know, you're dealing with this and you're also now dealing with the stress, the fact that this is the start of the series and you have a time frame to get this episode out there. So like, yeah. what what is it, what is that time period like where you're basically just doing this? Like, is it as stressful as I would imagine it would be? It, it wasn't because they had planned, you know, we still had an air date, but I, I don't remember. I mean, I don't ever remember doing like crazy late night hours working you know what we call dawn patrol where you worked all night into the next day on on star trek because it was they had a ton of lead time up to it so they had a lot of that design process was was like kind of built into it and plus they did a lot of testing like there was i forget the the one that i remember working with rob on early on was there was this scene where uh, I think it was like Riker. They were like, they were being, they were being wrapped around these tentacle things and they had to escape from it. And they had shot it one way and it just like, it didn't, it didn't look like they were escaping. So, you know, there was like that kind of testing going on, like how, you know, how do we get it to look the best, you know, like, uh, you know, so and that wasn't a visual effect. That was a physical effect. But in many ways, they were also looking for ways to, you know, to enhance it as well. So what were some of the most common visual effects you'd be doing on the first season of Star Trek? Well, the, the you know, the main, the main things that I ended up doing were ship shots. Like every, seer, every episode had ship shots and transporters. Almost every almost every episode had ship shots and transporters. Now the ship shots, unless it was kind of like a like a special version of like a special episode, you know, we had a lot of them were essentially stock. That not stock, but I mean, like Rob had shot like tons of you know. Just basically built a library, essentially. Yeah, we had a library ship going around the planet, ship going away, ship coming towards, ship, you know, low angle, ship coming overhead. Um, You know, like we had that whole library. And then um, 
they would also shoot special stuff. Like if there was a battle, right. You know, they would, and I never forget like Rob always talking like, you know, like when, and this is the, you know, they're photographing miniatures. This is not, you know, they're not making it in CG. It's like, a, and I forget they had two, they had two models. There was a, I want to say there was like a, a six foot and a 12 foot model. But anyway, the point that I'm making is one of the enterprises like photographed great. And it was the bigger one because it had more like it had way more detail. And they would always come back from the motion control shoots, him and Gary Hutzel, who was Rob's um, number two on the show, who and later went on to visual effects supervise and won Emmys for God rest his soul, one for all kinds of Star Trek. He was another one. Super, super smart guy. Um they would when they were they would come back from the shoots they would be like ah that small model it's like we just can't get it to look good like we light the crap out of it and it just never looks good and when we use the big enterprise we put one light and it looks awesome you know like they were like struggling to get that smaller model to look good and i guess it depended on like budget and time and like what what was available i guess it was much harder to shoot the big model than the smaller model in terms of prep and what have you so but they you know there was all that stuff going on and then if there was a special ship they they would have to you know that would have to get built usually i i think greg gene built the ships um um uh and like they they would have to go and they would have to shoot those ships. They shot it at a place called uh, Image G uh, in Hollywood with to- a guy named Tom Barron was one of the early, you know, he knew he built motion control rigs. Very smart guy and a terrific visual effects guy and director in his own right. Very, very smart. I learned so much from Tom, you know, as look, I'm I, you know, you'll, you'll hear me say this over and over again, but I was blessed to be able to sit on the shoulders of these giants and learn how to make visual effects. Yeah, we just mentioned Gary Hutzel in the past yeah. few moments here, and we've been talking about Rob Legato. We haven't even mentioned uh, Dan Curry, who came on also as Dan, a VFX Dan. supervisor. So you, basically, you guys have like a legitimate think tank here of VFX people. So like, what yeah. did you learn? Like, What were some of the most valuable lessons you learned from these guys that you kept using throughout your career? Well, we were actually, the, the other thing was like, we were, it, it's interesting. Cause like we were feeding each other, you know, I learned how to, how to make visual effects, you know, essentially like, you know, how to shoot them and then how to put them together. But we were feeding each other because most of these guys only knew opticals. They didn't know um, video. So there was like, I was showing them stuff that, you know, that they, that couldn't be done optically, you know, like I, I remember um, uh, one of the guys was like, he was like, you mean you can print in black wherever you need it? And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. He was like, you can't do that with optical. You can't print black. And I'm like, well, I can, we can do it in video. Cause it's, you know, it's, the, you know, it, it's, it, it's just, the, you know, the way it is, it's a whole, it's a different medium. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, you know, basically learning like what worked photographically, like what was possible photographically um, in terms of like, you know, even stuff like there was one, there was one episode I remember where you saw um, 
I want to say it was like Riker and Data walking into a room. But the way Rob did it was like, it looked, he made it look like this gigantic room just by having, by making most of the frame dark. And he shot a tiny little doorway at the bottom of the frame and then shot this model in really extreme light and put it together. And you're like, oh, that place is gigantic. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that I learned from him, how to use scale to make stuff look great, you know, so that so that you didn't spoil, you know, the illusion. Because you're at the same time, you're, you know, you're creating an illusion. You know, you, you, you always have to think, like, how is the viewer? And then the other, you know, one of the other occupational issues with doing what I do as a compositor and a visual effects supervisor is, you know, you get, um, you, you, your, your eye, as you go on, your eye becomes less fresh. So you, something that looks good at one o'clock, you might go to lunch and come back and go, Oh my God, that's, that just doesn't work. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta read jigger it so you know that was the other thing we were always like checking each other you know it's like you know and how can we make it better like what what more could we add like and dan you know dan was like you know he, he and rob like worked they had they were very they couldn't be more diametrically opposed both unbelievable artists in their own right but dan was like way more devil may care in terms of like although rob was a really funny I'm he's then he still is one of the funniest people on the planet. Like first day that I worked with him, like we're sitting there and um, you know, I'm doing my thing and I hear like like a fart sound. And I'm like and like like so I ignored it and I'm like I keep going and like it happens again. And I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe this guy is doing this. And then he he does it like one third time. And I was like, dude, really? And he goes, it's this. And he holds up this, he had this, it was like this red can that when you squeezed it, like it made the sound. And he goes, I did a commercial with Leslie Nielsen and he did the same thing to me and he gave it to me. And I was like, oh dude, that's awesome. But like Dan was like, he was great at like seeing stuff that, you know, like, like there, there in one of the episodes there was this there was this robot that looked like it it was kind of like this like this like contoured robot like in a kit um and he basically made it out of a pant there used to be these pantyhose called legs and they came in an egg he made it out of a pantyhose thing and like a part of a, a, like an ivory soap bottle and then another thing. And, but this is what's really trippy. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that's from Arsenal of Freedom. If I'm remembering that correctly. Yes, 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 yes. So the really cool thing was he would, I would sit there and I'd be doing my, you know, making a shot and they're like, whatever. And he'd be sit there with like a piece of paper He'd go and grab it from the copier and a pencil. 
and I he'd be sitting there and he's like designing this robot, and I'm like like looking over as he's pulling this robot out of the paper with a pencil, you know, essentially designing, and I'm like going. Man, that's it was like boy, it was like blowing my mind because I was like, dude, like, like the art chops he had was was like amazing. And then he went and figured out how to build it out of shit he found around his house. Like there was another one where he built like a little shuttlecraft out of a razor, like like out of a like a plastic razor. Like he made like the fins that um or the landing skids were made out of two things from a like a, a disposable razor so it was like that kind of stuff it was like anything was possible and i was like man just to work with these guys that had that kind of imagination that could like pull that stuff you know just kind of like out of the out of the ether and then make it you know it was awesome like i said every day i'm just like man it's like it just doesn't get any better than this it's kind of funny that you brought up the uh, the USS Gillette, if you will, because I was just rewatching the uh, the Reading Rainbow episode where uh, Laura oh, right. out of TNG, which is like one of my favorite Reading Rainbows of all time. Like I remember watching that as a kid, first Dude, time I'm ever. On that. And I know I was just gonna actually ask you about that, yeah, because yeah. I just say I got to just rewatch it, and I just remembered like how great it was. And you mentioned you know visiting the set of a Burger King commercial being yeah. filmed. Yeah. For me, like that episode of Reading Rainbow was my first time seeing the production of how things get made on tv happen so like for me that's still a memory that i have and i can remember that episode so vividly and i just rewatched it and found out that yeah you're there too uh, fred yeah. Romani's there um so yeah tell me about being on reading rainbow that's like a dream come true for me right there i mean wow. well that was um you know rob of course you know uh, lavar was on the show and you know he played jordy and um i you know he was he just they were gonna do an episode and part of it was going to the set and part of it was showing how the stuff was going to be put together. So that was where I kind of came up with the, um, I actually rehearsed kind of rehearsed it in my head, like what, how I was going to, how I was going to demonstrate it. Like when I show how we put the ship, the planet on the star and the ship on the planet and explained how, the mat is like a cookie cutter. I tried to make it like simple. So kids would like, you know, get like, get it. Um, and I put that all together ahead of time. I had it all planned out, you know, just so that, you know, on the day, you know, it looks like we, you know, it, it looked good and it was interesting and, and people, you know, kind of, kind of got it. I mean, it was, it was, it was really that simple. And like, for me, it was kind of trippy because like, they were like, oh, come on, like, you got to do makeup. And I was like, oh, man, really, do I have to do makeup? And he was like, LeVar was like, so cool. He was like, Fred, if you want to be on, you got to you got to wear your colors. He was like, so go get the makeup. So they, you know, it was like a whole thing. It was really, it was a really cool experience. Um, you know, just, uh, and, and I have to say, I've had more people, in my professional life come up to me and say guys that I work with now or have worked with who were much smarter and much more talented than me say, I do, I'm doing this because of what I saw, because I saw you on reading rainbow and I'm like, man, it just doesn't get better than that. It just doesn't get better than that. I mean, it's like just to inspire one kid. It's like, man, it's it's the best. It's the coolest. 
I mean, that was my first exposure to that world, and it still is something. Yeah, you know, just watching again, like this, not only the nostalgia, but just the information. It's yeah. all just really good stuff there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just love seeing it again. And as we mentioned, the USS Gillette—that's like something that Rob shows. So, if you guys haven't yeah. watched that episode, uh, it is on YouTube. So go hunt it down. Make sure. Oh you no, watch kidding. It. Yeah, it's it's yeah. totally great. I just like I said, I just rewatched it. It's totally worth checking out if you've never seen it before. Yeah, uh, but even if you have, go watch it again. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because they actually put like I remember like them bringing the uh, bringing it back to the edit bay and showing it to me like because they had they had, like I don't know who did it whether it was Greg or because Gary was also Gary Hutzel was also great at that stuff like he could wire like he would lot wire uh, lights into the spa- the little models and stuff so he was really he was really smart like he even knew how to do get down and dirty with computer like programming the computer to get the lights to chase and do all that you know he was a really smart guy so let's talk about a few specific episodes a few specific moments in that first season of tng that you worked on um but before we actually get into that i guess certain moments i know that you have a story uh you haven't quite told me what it is yet but i know you've got a story about encounter at farpoint and i guess the opening night right so what's well it isn't the opening night actually and this is <laughs> once again so it's like trouble already oh <laughs> oh my god dude it's like the most one of the most embarrassing moments but oh, we love embarrassing said that here. i didn't like one of the like I had never seen I I didn't know anything about the script. I knew nothing about the sh- show. We were I don't even think we had I think we were just getting started. So like they it wasn't like they said, you know, Fred, here's your script, go and read it and what's we'll, up? You know, it was more like, you know, at that point it was just like one of the guys on the periphery you know like i was going to be putting the stuff together and you know i got to know them all like peter lauritsen and you know so the basically the i forget which producers it was but i think it was peter lauritsen who was like one of the main producers on the show uh, and and rob me um i don't think dan was it dan didn't come on until like the third i like the third episode or something um and then um anyway to make a long story short they were gonna screen the first episode the first the first hour of encounter at farpoint right the two-hour movie so the episode starts and we get to like, I, I forget whether it was the first commercial break. And I don't even know if the cut was locked yet. You know what I mean? It was like it, the cut might have still been in progress. So I know nothing about the series. And to me, I'm like, who's this old guy? That's, that's on the so we go through and the, the, uh, the, um, and it was probably because Picard was bald, you know, so it, was, it looked older. So we get to like the first or second, I forget him. It was like the first or second um, uh, commercial break. And I say, just like without even like thinking of it, I'm like, the old guy dies, right? Like they don't like he and they were like, they looked at me. They were like, no, he's the captain. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I was like so embarrassed. I'm like I, I had no idea. I like I didn't, you know, I didn't grok it at the beginning of the of the of the the um, you know, I I knew nothing about the series, so I was just, you know, anyway, 
<laughs> Over so 30 years like, later, I'm embarrassed for you. That's that's a rough that's, one. Just, yeah, it's like, uh, dude, I'll never, I, like, I remember the words exactly. The old guy dies, right? It's like, because I figured, oh, he's going to die and Riker's going to be the captain because they would never have, like, you know, like an older, like, wiser guy, you know. But, of course, he was, you know one of the greats, you know, turned yeah. out to be one of the greats, you know, it's just, and just an amazing friggin' actor too. Of course. Yeah. On, you know, on top of it. I mean, you're pretty lucky that Gene Roddenberry wasn't there either. And uh, yeah, yeah, that probably would have been the end of me on Star Trek, the next generation. <laughs> I mean, that, that said, did you ever get to have a chance to, uh, to meet or chat with the great bird of the galaxy? I didn't, but I did get to shake his hand at the, we had the, the premiere was uh at i want to say they did it at the griffith observatory was where they where they we screened it there or we screened it in hollywood and then the party was at the griffith observatory i I forget but i'll tell you two moments from that one uh at the at the party at the end Rob was like walking around and Gene was there and he introduced me. I got to shake hands with Gene. Um, the other one was when it was over, I went to the restroom and I'm in the restroom and uh, Patrick Stewart is in there. And then um, Jonathan Frakes walks in and they kind of like lock eyes and like Patrick Stewart was like, Number one, you know, and I was just like, oh, my God, this just doesn't get any cooler. You know, like they were and like they gave them each other a big hug because, you know, it was so great. Everybody it was just awesome. You know, we had just watched the episode and everybody was like so chuffed. It was like everybody was like so stoked, you know, and I think that was the first time he had seen Jonathan till, you know, after the episode had finished, you know. So it was it was a pretty, pretty cool moment. The, the other really cool moment from a, a guy standpoint was uh, sitting down. I was sitting with my wife and we were, I look over and I see this like beautiful woman dressed in like this denim miniskirt and this super tight top. And I'm like, whoa, who is that? And I, I happened to see Rob and I was like, Rob, who's that? Who's the, you know, he was like, that's Marina Sirtis. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't recognize her and not the, you know, she had completely different hair, completely different outfit. Like she was like, I, I was just, she was just like, so, oh my God, she was so hot. <laughs> well, that hasn't changed. That's good to know, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was trying to think, you know, from season one of TNG, like, you know, what, what special effects, what visual effects really stood out to me? And there's like two I can think of. And uh, okay. other than what we've mentioned already, you know, because the show has... Tons of phasers, tons of phasers. Because I actually thought I actually thought of I thought of one which was really but go ahead. Fit, go. Right, we'll see if we get to it. I, I got two here, and the first one I was thinking of was uh from where no one has gone before. And that's the warp effects when the ship is going like beyond warp ten or whatever, you know, beyond what it's supposed to be being capable of doing. And I was curious if you worked on that effect. I don't really remember what I'm I'm sure I did because I put together most of the ship shots for the show um it uh but I, I don't really that one doesn't really um that one doesn't really ring a bell but i think that might have been the one that where dan because he can't he had to come up with like a like a because they had to get like it was like a different look it wasn't the normal 
you know, wasn't, it wasn't like the normal look. So, and I think that was something that Dan may have come up with. And I think he used, he photographed like, um, I don't know if this is the effect, but I know at, at one point he used like, um, it was like a pom-pom. It was like really weird, but the way he photographed it, like you would never know. It was like, but it was like a chrome cheerleading, like it was like a mylar, all shiny cheerleading pom-pom. And I think the way he photographed it and lit it, like when you actually saw it, you were like, wow, that is a really cool. Look at that. That's How did you get, how did you get it to look like that? I would have never guessed, you know, what it was. Well, the other one that really stands out in my mind, and this one is, I, I feel like I see this like memed at least once a week in all the different Facebook meme groups. Um, but the, the penultimate episode of season one, which is conspiracy. And it's known for having, you already see where I'm going with this. It's, it's known yeah. for having like one of the goriest moments in yes. Star Trek history. Yes. Yeah. Uh, were you responsible or part one of one the- of my favorite things to ever put together? This is your fault. Well, yeah. Yeah. And me and Dan, well, Dan, Dan is, was the mastermind. I just, look, I just got to put it together. You know, it was, but you know, Dan, he, like that was all his, you know, his doing and he photographed it. And I, I, I just had the, the, the luck to, and the, you know, I, to be in the right place at the right time to put it together. But, you know, that was, he, he essentially built what we affectionately called the meat puppet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he built this head out of me, real meat. And then I guess froze it and put the eyeballs in it and sculpted it and then blew it up. And were you guys even concerned at that point that, like, would this even make it to air? It's so violent. I mean, was that ever a thought in your heads? Well, you know, not really. I mean, we were always, like, pushing things, you know, trying to make it, like, cooler, better, you know. But, um, you know, it was just, like, one of those things where it just, like, it was so much fun to put together. Like, I got to go back and watch that, actually. I'm, I'm really, truthfully, I'm, what I was wondering, like, when they remastered them all, I was like, Wow, they're gonna have to go. I guess they'll have to go back to the original elements and re, you know, re put together the whole thing. You know, hopefully the the original elements still are still there. We're still there somewhere, you know. But yeah, that was that was one of the most fun. And Dan was like that. If if like Dan, it was like this. He he, it, devil may care is like the best way to describe him. You know, if there was a way for him to like be a little boy and get, you know, just, <laughs> you know, like grow somebody out or like what, you know, like, or ha- make a joke. It was hit, you know, that was, that was his thing, you know? Well, mission accomplished. Cause it's yeah. still nightmare fuel this many years later. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember he actually put the eye out eyeballs in it and everything. It was freaking great. <laughs> You know, and then we had the, you know, and then the, the you know, the other, the, the, it, 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 it was pretty, pretty great. You know, and once again, I mean, I have to say, like, compared, compared to the tools that are there today for artists, guys that do what I do, compositing, visual, you know, visual effects, compositing, um, I mean, they, the guys today or the guys and gals today, the artists are they're they're actually on a starship. They're 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 using like 
starship quality tools. Me, back then, I was a caveman rubbing two sticks together. <laughs> you know, you know, it's just, you know, it was like a different time. You know, this so it was, you know, it was kind of cool though, because we got to influence what the tools were gonna be going forward. You know, yeah, you're basically we saying friends. We were kind of figuring it out as we went along, you know. And yeah, we mentioned all these different effects and things like that, but like what was the post production workflow for you guys? Because like you just said, it's rubbing two sticks together in that time period. It's really a developing art. So yeah. how did you guys work? What was the process like on an episodic so basis? So here's um just what would happen was, you know, they would shoot, uh, they would get an edit and then based on the edit, they would, uh, yeah. And I think in the edit, they would, they would do like a temp of the effect just so that they would know how it would, would work. And then, like a previs. Yeah. Like a previs. And then, um, once that was done, they would go and they would transfer the film. Uh, and then, uh, the film would get transferred to videotape. You know, this is the other thing that's at the time we hadn't really conquered this, uh, you know, film was shot at 24 frames per second. Video was running at 29.97 frames per second. So we had something called three, two pull down, which was, it's a very complicated thing, but suffice to say um it made um compositing like very difficult because you were never working with full frames you were working with you know sometimes half a frame or one and a half frames you know it's like it was a very very complicated thing and that didn't really kind of like conforming the footage but dropping frames while you're doing it yeah kind of well you had to keep you had to keep all them you had to keep it all but the place where it got um you didn't really see a lot of um, move movement of things digitally in in the um, in in that first season. Very few, and the reason was because the 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 piece of gear we had that could actually move something in the frame only moved at thirty frames per second. So it it had a very different look than the film. Right. The film was had you had pull down in it. So it had a particular stutter to it. This other thing didn't move that way. It moved at 30 frames per second, whether you liked it or not. Later on, we once we were able to get into the digital domain, we were able to take the three two pull down out, work at 24 frames per second and then put the three two pull down back in. So that's kind of how we were able to get it just made stuff better. You know, that was that was part of the process. But once again, the stuff would get transferred to videotape. They would they would transfer the film. Now, the other thing was what like, for instance, for a ship, they would shoot motion control. They would shoot a beauty pass. Then they would turn off all the lights in the studio turn on the lights on the enterprise, shoot a light pass. So it's just the enterprise. It's just the lights of the enterprise. Then they would turn, take all the light off the foreground, off the enterprise 
and turn on all the lights of the background. So essentially you had a black enterprise against a white screen. That was a map pass. So I would be delivered all these things on these elements on videotape. And it was up to me to put them together in using the switcher, you know, sync, I had to sync them up. And then, you know, most of the time shooting motion control, they had like something called a, a bloop light. So they would have a light that was actually controlled by the compute, same computer that was controlling the camera. And the, they would put this light up at the beginning of the take right and it would like bloop so you just sync up all the bloop lights and then you would know that your elements were were all in sync and then you know then it was just when it's done it's like next <laughs> you know <clears throat> but yeah that was essentially the workflow when they did blue screens they didn't do them at our place they did them at a place called CIS and the reason was because CIS had a proprietary system where they composited right off the film. Like they didn't transfer to videotape. They actually composited right off the film itself. They would, they would, they, they would use the telecine as an element essentially. So you would, they were able to pull a much better blue screen, um, uh, doing it that way. So any blue screen stuff, like usually stuff when they were in front of the, 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 you know, looking out to the big viewport that was in front. I don't even know what, what do you call that screen? Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the main view, you know, in front of the main the, monitor. Yeah. The main, yeah. The main monitor that was, mo if someone had to stand in front of it, that was usually done uh, by CIS. And I think Don Lee was the compositor that did that. Another brilliant guy. He's a visual effects supervisor. Now another super smart guy. So, Fred, to kind of put a pin in our Star Trek talk, because we can go on, I think, for hours about Trek alone, and we already basically have gone over an hour just on Trek, but uh, just kind of put a pin on it here. What would you say was the most challenging visual effect you and your team did for that first season? The one that caused you guys, like, the most headaches, the sleepless nights? Was there anything like that that was just, like, really hard to get your heads around? There was one... Uh... There was one episode where we had to do... I forget what the episode was, but I remember working like a whole weekend on it. Like I, like I, like I worked through the weekend trying to figure out how to do this, but it was like, um, it was like a hologram and they wanted, they wanted them to walk, a, like walk around it. And I, I, it, that was really, that was really, really difficult. The, the other one that was really complicated for me, just from a logistic, just keeping track of stuff was the, um, the data going back in time one where there were three datas, you know, <laughs> that, that was one, a tricky one, that was, that was, that was a really tricky one. And then the other one that was, that was a bit of a worry was when, um, uh, was, uh, when Tasha got the, 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 the tar, the monster, like what, like how we were going to get that to look, you know, that was, that was, that was a, that was a tough one to get to look good. Like we massaged that like crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that the, uh, the hologram was also the same episode. Cause that would have probably been the hologram of Tasha Yard or funeral. So I think that would have both been from skin of evil. Those two things. Yeah. 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 That was, that was, that was so tricky. That was tricky to get it to, you know, so you actually like, cause people already had an idea of like, what's that supposed to look like? 
you know, like from Star Wars, you know, the projection from, you know, R2-D2, you know, that was, you know, so we, we ended up, they ended up doing, you know, something, you know, completely different, something a little bit more elegant. That was, that was like my big word was, you know, always try to keep it elegant. You know, that was. I mean, visually, that's kind of the difference between the Star Trek thing and a Star Wars thing is that Star Trek is always much more elegant, more refined and sophisticated looking. And Star Wars yeah. is like gritty, grungy. Uh, I don't want to use noir, but it kind of is like the opposite of it always has been the opposite of Star Trek. Yeah. Thing. And the other thing about Star Trek is like, I mean, I haven't watched any of the newer series, but, you know, like they were all little morality plays. You know, you were always kind of learning something about human nature or, you know, it was like a whole different story, uh, a whole different story set up, you know what I mean? Then, then, you know, then, then star Wars, different thing. So Fred, you're actually the first Grammy award-winning person we talked to on the show. We've actually had one nominee previously, but you're the first award winner of this. And I'd love to hear, uh, what was it that you got the Grammy for? It was for a music video you did, right? For a music video I did with, um, David Fincher called love is strong. And it was a Rolling Stones music video. And the, the, um, the concept was giant Rolling Stones walking around in new, around New York City. And, um, I had a relationship with David Fincher from when he was getting started. I didn't, is, maybe the first commercial that he ever directed you know when and 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 the early music videos that he did um so i had a relationship with him so when i went to digital domain and the rolling stones video came along we uh you know he came to me and was like this is the idea how should we shoot it the other thing that we were fighting on that particular video was had a really short schedule like a ridiculously short schedule like to want like 21 days to do like 120 shots like which is you know and back in 1994 that was a insane amount of work um but it came out great um it was um you know we once again like i'm i'm a huge um i am not a fix it and post guy i'm a plan ahead shoot it right and spend 90% 90% of the time making it look great and 10% of the time fixing stuff rather than the other way around. Um, if you do that, you'll, I, I guarantee you will always have a better result. And that, that's David's, you know, I was lucky enough to be, to do many, many projects with David and he's the, he's comes from that same background, that same ethos and work ethic. So I learned you know, planning ahead is just, and it, and it, and it worked great. I mean, um, and I, I, I got a Grammy for it, which is awesome. And an MTV, I got an uh, MTV award. I got an astronaut for it too. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a big, that was a really huge project for me. And to this day, people still, um, people still ask me about it. You should see the, the threads on the the YouTube page for like, you know, I buy always, if there's a, a project that's near and dear to my heart that I love, I'll always go and post something like, you know, I, I was the visual effects supervisor on this. We, you know, da, 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 da. 
uh, people I've liked it. Sometimes people like to hear about that stuff, but that's, um, that was quite a, uh, that was a, that was a really cool project, really fun project to do. I imagine too, on a much deeper level for someone like you, who was a musician and was in a band and like, I imagine Rolling Stones were a big influence on you too, right? So that's gotta be dream. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not that I actually got to meet them because I was in Los Angeles doing while David, because we shot, it's really interesting because we shot that in two, two pieces. Like David went to New York, shot all the backgrounds keeping in mind who was going to be in what shot then edited the whole video without any of them in there and then he went on stage at digital domain with a camera and a lens package and basically lined up every shot so when he shot the rolling stones they would walk in do their one line go out so they were it, it, it was like military precision it was really 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 kind of cool so i was doing all the groundwork for when he came back with the actual shots of the rolling stones to put you know to put them in there was a ton of prep work that needed to be done before we even put them in a, in a shot digital domain was a california post-production house that was really really prolific for their vfx work when they first came out they were, yeah, they they were not they place. were not a, they were not a really a post-production house they were a visual effects company visual effects house okay yeah 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 you know, know started you by James Cameron, Stan Winston, and Scott Ross. So kind know. of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And I was very, I, once again, Rob Legato brought me over there at the beginning. I was employee 13 there. So wow. really, you know, really early on. So yeah, I was one of the, you know, earliest employees there. So. I know, like, one of the things that you did that I wanted to really ask you about today was uh, True Lies, because <laughs> yeah. I saw that on your resume, and I was like, oh, okay, cool, you were a compositor on True Lies, and yes. uh, were you part of the team that worked on that shot where, basically the finale, if you will, where Arnold yes. Missile, you're, yeah. okay, so yeah, folks haven't seen it, Arnold Schwarzenegger is flying in, like, an F-18 or whatever it is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah no, yeah, it was in a, uh, a Harrier jump. Harrier jet, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you guys so, did that, so, like, tell me about how that scene comes together. That's, like, a, so, such a fun actually, scene. Actually, that's a really interesting story, because... They were so, um, what we did was we did, um, they shot all those pieces, right? Most of those shots were of that looking down on the Harrier were shot on a stage, right? They had, um, they, they, um, they had a full size Harrier on stage and they, they shot it on a big green, you know, and did all that where he's trying to save his daughter and, uh, they launched, you know, the year of fire and all that stuff. And so they had cut that scene with uh, very few of those green screen shots in there because they were just afraid that they were not going to work. And after we did the first couple of them and Jim saw them and the editor saw them, they were like, we're recutting that scene. And they then they put all these you know, they put way more shots in it because with the proof of concept was how good they looked. They were like, oh, man, we're going to put way more of this in this movie. So that was that was, you know, that was that that was that. And um, yeah, I mean, I worked on I worked on a handful of those shots, you know, you know, probably, you know, five or ten of those shots. I mean, you worked on a lot of really cool stuff here, and we haven't even really gotten into talking about your commercial work yet, because that's also a pretty big deal for you, because that kind of also pivoted you towards directing more. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, you know, I was, I worked 
um, I worked in the commercial division of Digital Domain. I, I, I originally went there wanting to do movies and then um, seeing how long movies took to do. I wasn't really, I'm much more of a sprinter than a marathoner. So the other thing was I, you know, I thought to myself, man, if I'm going to work two years on somebody's movie, it's going to be my movie, not somebody else's movie. You know what I mean? It's anyway, make a long story short. I ended up working in the commercials division there for like 15 years and won five or six Clio's and I did very, I did very, very well. I worked on a lot of award-winning work, went on Oprah. I did the very first Budweiser Clydesdales kicking the football uh, commercial, which was, which was great. It was really fun. Um, you know, I had a lot of great opportunities there. And once again, I owe that to Scott Ross and Ed Ulbrich. They, you know, they saw more in me than I saw in myself, which is a wonderful thing when people you know, they, they can lift you up like that. Plus having the firepower of, you know, a place like digital domain, which is, you know, with a big studio like that, one of the wonderful things is somebody always has the answer. And if they don't, you have a meeting and somebody comes up with the answer, you know, it's, it's, a, there's always a way, you know, it's a, one of the wonderful things about working like a, uh, working in a studio like that. And of course, getting to meet and work with Jim Cameron, you know, yeah. it's just, he's the coolest, the super nice guy, well, you know. Like to me, he'll, he'll be Mr. Cameron. To you, he's Jim. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you have to work on some really cool stuff. I mean, uh, your, yeah. your VFX reel is on your website. Uh, and you know, you just to let folks know, I mean, you've done stuff, as you mentioned already, for a bunch of big places, but you did GMC. Uh, you did Coors Light, Microsoft, Dell, uh, IBM. Did a really cool piece for McDonald's. I, I liked a lot, actually. Huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's really funny. I had uh, that was um, Earth's Treasure was the name of that spot where yeah. where a bunch of aliens come down to Earth and they steal the soda machine out of a out of a McDonald's. You know, and it's it's like this whole i you know i kind of essentially wrote this whole like little story about how you know they i presented it and then you know that was um i i got um you know part of the reason i got hired to do that job was a because my treatment read like a movie and uh the other thing was when i presented to the agency i had already hired a character designer um uh tully summers uh and uh he designed the the characters for that and part a part of what i wanted to do was my since there was like this moment where there was like this you know like a turnaround moment where they went from like these evil looking aliens to like bugs bunny you know i wanted them uh, you know i wanted dr pepper to make them look you know, happy and like, you know, funny. So Tully came up with these designs that were just, you know, awesome. And, um, that's, you know, that, that was kind of, that was kind of it. And then I work with, um, I work with a company called, um, the, um, the guy who was the animator, the, the animation director on that was a guy named Piotr Carvas. Um, uh, and, um, he terrific, terrific, uh, animator. And, uh, you know, that's he 
you know, he did. He did, you know, he, he did most of that. So, you know, and it's largely an animated spot. And that's what that's kind of like what I, I love doing. Yeah, I also just kind of like the fact that it's like, here's these aliens who have mastered traveling across the galaxy, but they can't quite master carbonated beverages. I just like that right. concept, too. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and another one of those pieces too I really liked was uh, the one you did for Lego Dimensions. Lego uh, Dimensions. That was another like love, like beautiful one of the high points professionally for me. It's a really uh, beautifully done piece too. For folks who haven't yeah. seen it as well, you know, even if you don't know what Lego Dimensions is, it was a game for yeah. Lego that used Lego pieces and it basically would put them into your video game. It's a cool concept, no longer around. Yeah. Uh, and, and the launch commercial you guys did was really cool, really, you know, informative and also just really, really entertaining and just yeah. great to look it at. Was, it was really fun and it was like, and it was more of a film. It was more, it was yeah. a little, it was a short film. And I got to work with Joel McHale. He was the talent on that. But the so fun directing this also, right? You're directing and doing the VFX, right? This is a total package. I, actually, I was the director and a company called uh, Plastic Wax in uh, Australia did the vi- visual effects. So there was a, a different visual effects supervisor on that, that particular job. So really, you know, it's it's very hard for me anyway. It is. It's very hard to be a visual effects supervisor and a director at the same time because you're it's like being the passenger and the driver in a car. You know, you're both in the car, but they're two very different experiences. So um, I, on a big job like that, I really try to not to have, I try not to be the visual effects supervisor. It's just too hard because you have, you're worried about a whole bunch of different things, you know, and it's like, it would just be that. I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the the film is the most important thing uh and how the viewer reacts to the film and i think it would suffer to do to try to do both you know especially on a big animated project like that you know because i'm you know it's like i there were all these like little moments you know i don't know if you realize like notice i did i did an, an homage to the avengers where there's the the it cir- the camera circles around the little lego figures and you know i the, the one the, the what i think is like the um it's the thumbnail for the whole is when uh when joel McHale is holding wild style in front of her in, in front of in front of his face, <laughs> you know. So yeah, it was a, a really really fun project, and uh, you know, I got I got to do more. I got to do so much cool stuff on that because I had a great budget and great team around me. You got Lego money, go for it. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So just kind of bring up uh, to current events for Fred Raimondi these days too. I know you you branched off a while ago and made your own company, but uh, you know, tell us about that and what what you're working on these days. What you can tell us that you're working on, what you're doing these days. So unfortunately, I can't really tell you about anything that I'm working on. That's right. right. That's an answer we're very familiar with here on Trek Untold. Right now, I'm NDA'd, but suffice to say, um, uh, I'm 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 working on. Um, uh, uh, f- uh, the fairly big, uh, movie, uh, that's supposed to come out, uh, uh, summertime, um, right now. Um, and I split my time between, uh, right now because of COVID I'm, I'm working from home a lot. Um, my company, the ministry of illusion, we kind of do a little bit of everything like we'll do. Um, I can do, I do all in jobs where I'll, 
direct and then do the visual effects. Last year I did, uh, in 2019, I did a film called The Tiger Rising, which comes out um, January 21st, which is um, a a lovely um, story uh, adapted for the screen and directed by my my colleague and dear friend, Ray Giratana. And I was the visual effects supervisor and second unit director on on that movie. Um, And um, shot a live, got to shoot a live tiger for five days, which was really fun. Um, And um, uh, so we do, my company, we do all in stuff like uh, we'll do stuff like that uh, over the summer. I ended up working on Borat a little bit. I did a hand once again, that came from Rob. He needed help on Borat and I ended up doing the, uh, probably, I don't know, 30, 40 shots on that. Um, so we're, you know, that kind of, that kind of company, um, it's like a really a one person company. It's me. And if I need to pull in vendors to help me with computer graphics and, or other stuff, that's like, you know, way above my pay grade or, you know, even design stuff I'll, like I'll bring in, you know, I, I know what I'm good at. And so like, I'll, I'll usually bring in people if, you know, if I need to, um, and then um, I was also lucky to work on one once I, I was lucky to work on the se- the second um, season of Stranger Things, Stranger Things 2, which was a wonderful experience. I worked with visual effects supervisor Paul Graff, who is a genius, another genius, you know, like once again, I feel like I get to stand on the shoulders of giants and he is a giant um, and his wife. um, um they run they have their own company called crazy horse visual effects um it was uh that was a wonderful professional experience one of the top professional experiences of my life working with the duffers like just cool super cool super cool dudes and uh like the whole team that we worked with was really wonderful um you know it, i'm like i said i'm really uh once again i i I thank my lucky stars every day that I get to do this. You know, it's like sometimes, you know, sometimes when uh, like I'll turn to people and go, you know, when we're working, I'll say, you know, I'm like, you know, what's amazing. And they'll go, what I go, they pay us for this. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, just that, you know, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. You know, sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it's, it's a drag and you, you have to do, you know, grunt work, but, um, by and large, uh, I'm so lucky to be able to do what I do and, and get paid for it. Yeah. One of the things I kind of noticed as you, as I looked at your career through my lens of Trek Untold here yeah. is that, uh, you know, you came into this industry at a real transitionary time period where film was being phased out, videotape was becoming a big thing, but you've kind of always been on top of the technology. You've always been kind of on that cutting edge here. And you've always been adaptable to that. And I feel like that's yeah. something that, uh, you know, I've taught some folks in the past, they can't really adapt. And if you can't adapt, you die out. It's, yeah. it's dinosaurs, basically. So, yeah. um, you know, how important has it been for your career to kind of like stay up with these trends and just always be part of how the process has changed? Well, the dirty little secret about me is that that's the juice for me. I'm a knowledge junkie. I love learning. So... Um, if there's something that I can't do, I'm going to 
dig in and figure out how to do it. And if I have to, you know, a, a lot of this comes, a lot of that discipline comes from being a musician because I learned really early on that the teacher is a very valuable person and um you that teacher student relationship is really important so you get you get much further much faster if you go to somebody who's who can teach you how to do it and actually show you the right way to do it but you know that's my that's my thing i'm a knowledge junkie i'm you know almost almost to the detriment you know of you know, I'll get off. I'll get hung up on you know, learning how to do something and to go almost completely, you know, forget what the aim was. I'll be like, oh, look how cool that is. You know, it's like, so yeah. I mean, it's um, it it that's never been a really hard the a hard part of it for me. You know, it's like it, it it's I know it's what you kind of have to do, but um. At the same time, it's for me, it's a joy. You know, it's like I'm really big on aphorisms, you know, think I I I I use them every day to keep me centered and in the right place. And I'm one of my favorite ones is um live as if you'll die tomorrow and learn as if you'll live forever, you know, and you know, it's, you can't go wrong with that. <laughs> all right. So, Fred, as we come to a close here of this episode, uh, I'd love to ask you the same question I ask all my guests at the conclusion of all these shows. And that's what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Wow. Uh, bragging rights. <laughs> I mean, how many people get to say they actually worked on Star Trek? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, and, and was able to, you know, create, had a, had a hand in actually creating integral imagery that went with, was part of a, you know, bringing the, bringing the, uh, the whole, um, the whole series back to TV, you know, it's <laughs> pretty awesome. Uh, I think the Jersey boy did pretty good for himself in Hollywood. Yeah, I think I did okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Fred, thank you so much for chatting with us today, telling us all about the different work you've done on all sorts of different things, not just Trek, but everything else that you've done. And you really have been an innovator. Uh, You've been a trendsetter with a lot of the work that you've done over the years. Uh, Truly have. I mean, this is really great to be able to chat with you and learn about what you've done because you've had such a diverse career and really not just the VFX, the editing, directing. I mean, there's so much to you, so much different creative elements to you. And, uh, you know, it's you've had an amazing career and you continue to have an amazing career. Well, thank you very much. And really the pleasure is all mine. And if I, this, if listening to this inspires one person, I'll be even happier. I'm I'm pretty confident that it will. So thank you, Fred, so much for sharing all these stories with us today. Great. You take care and thanks again. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold or pick up some merchandise from our Redbubble store. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments for the show or would like to suggest a guest or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. 
Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.